you have your Bibles, please meet me in Mark chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 35 to 41 as you're making your way there. Last I was with you, you were in another facility, and uh, I am amazed at this new facility uh, that God has graced you with. Um, When it comes to buildings, I think um, my generation, particularly my parents' generation and older, made too big of a deal out of them. And younger generations typically make not enough of a deal out of them. As we know, God cannot be housed in a building, but some of the longest and most detailed passages of Scripture is God giving very specific input on what buildings should look like. The God we serve doesn't shrug his shoulders and is nonchalant about them. So I pray that this building is stewarded well for the glory of God, that there are more people who come to faith in Jesus, more people who are baptized, more people who are part of the family of God, and that this building would be a place that looks like uh, the city of San Francisco. It's rich with diversity because heaven will be rich with diversity. If I was in a chocolate church, someone would have said amen, but I understand how you all roll around here, so let's get right back to it. You guys are begging for a long sermon because I don't know if you're with it or not. Here we go. Mark chapter 4, pick me up in verse 35. John Mark writes these words. On that day when evening had come, he, speaking of Jesus, said to them, that's the disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And, hear the detail, other boats were with him. And a great windstorm, in the Greek literally a mega storm, arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke And rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a, I love it, in the Greek, a mega calm. So we go from a mega storm to a mega calm. This Jesus is amazing. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith. So he turns from rebuking the storm to rebuking his followers. And they were filled with great, literally in the Greek, you guessed it, mega fear. <laughs> and said to one another, who in the world is this? That even the wind and the sea Obey him. Wow. The punchline of this text is not about ultimately God calming the storms in your life. It is about the greatness and the glory of Jesus. Jesus is after far more, an American portion of the sermon, than calming your situation. 
he is more fixated on his glory. And he, if he has to prolong your storm to magnify his glory, he will do exactly that. Let's pray. So, Father, would you speak to us? I bless you for this church, for every life that you've changed. I thank you for what you're doing in the lives of our sister church over there in London. We rejoice people coming to know Jesus, passing from death to life. Now, Lord God, would you speak to us? Some are here right now, they, they are in the middle of a storm. Others have just come out of a storm. Still others, unbeknownst to them, are on their way into a storm. We need this word. And so, Father God, would you, would you speak through me to your people? Would Jesus be made beautiful? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I was a teenager, I used to love to have, um, I used to love to go to the local mall. I grew up in Atlanta, so yes, I am excited about my Braves. <laughs> World champions. Sorry, Giants. Even more sorry for the Dodgers. We beat them. So I grew up on the south side of Atlanta, and I would love to go to the mall there. And part of the reason why I love going to the mall there, a little mall called Shannon Mall, is, um, is they, had a, um, they had an art store that specialized in a particular kind of art called um, uh, anamorphic art. Anamorphic art. The idea of anamorphic art is um, th there are typically multiple objects, uh, specifically two objects inserted into the painting. There, there is an object that you immediately see. And so I'd walk into this gallery, I'd go from painting to painting, and, and there I would immediate, immediately see the, the, the object, it's right there. But then there's a, another object that wasn't as immediately seen. You would have to look closely for it. You would, you would have to, here it is, oftentimes you'd have to look at it from a different angle. It would be an object that oftentimes the, the artist had inserted beneath the object. So there were times I'd go through this gallery and, uh, you know, here I am, I'm, I can really see the first object and then, you know, oftentimes it would take me a little bit longer to find the second object and, and but, but there'd be times I'd go to a painting, I couldn't find the second object and I'd, I'd, I'd hail the salesperson, I'd say, it's just not here and oftentimes they'd smile and they'd just say to me, I want you to look closer. I want you to look at our text as we are in this series making our way through the Gospel of Mark as a anamorphic piece of art. There's the Jesus that we see right on the surface. And we're gonna look at that Jesus. But then Mark inserts another stunning image of Jesus. One that's beneath the surface. One that for those of us who are Americans, who grew up in the church, it is going to demand that we put aside our American eyes and pick up the eyes of the ancients because this is really the Jesus Mark wants us 
to see. So we're in the Gospel of Mark, and it's just been fun for me just listening to the podcast of Reality San Francisco. We've just been making our way through the Gospel of Mark. Loved listening to Ruthie Kim. I could just listen to her all day. Of course, I love Dave, love listening to him and those who have been a part of this series. And Mark, as we understand, yes, Mark, as we understand, um, is the oldest gospel. So four authorized biographies on the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Mark is actually the oldest. It's the shortest. Uh, it can be read in about an hour's worth of time, one pastor on the East Coast says. Um, here, here is a gospel that is fast-paced. Um, it, it's not like Matthew and Luke, which read more like dramas. Mark reads more like an action movie. In other words, if we were scoring the background music to the movie of Jesus as depicted by Mark, it would be a fast-paced car scene. It's just immediately and immediately and immediately Mark's favorite word, one thing after another, after another, after another. Now we come to our text, which is seen in some of the other gospels. But when we look at our text, one of the things that should jump out at you is that Mark inundates our text with peculiar details. Details not necessarily seen in the other versions of this story. Details like Mark is quick to tell us that, that, that our story takes place during the time of day known as evening. He lets us know that there's not just a boat, but there are several other boats around. In 1987, to draw a parenthesis, they actually, archaeologists found a, a, a boat um, uh, in the Sea of Galilee dated from the time of Jesus, and they, they, they notated that this boat was about 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide. The reason why that's important is that boat that they found in 1987 can seat about 15 people comfortably. It's important because in our text, how many people are on the boat? They're, they're the 12 disciples, and, and then there's Jesus. So there's 13 people in this boat. It matches with the archaeological evidence. And then he tells us that, that Jesus is in a section of the boat called a stern, and Jesus is asleep, but not just asleep, he's on a cushion. These are details. Now, you don't need to spend a day in seminary to figure it out. John Mark is not one of the original 12 disciples, so how is he getting this, th these meticulous details? Scholars are agreed he's getting them from an eyewitness named Peter. Peter is giving Mark these details, and it is Peter's way of telling Mark this actually happened. I understand some of you are here and, and maybe you are on the fence when it comes to Jesus. Maybe some of you are here because like these disciples, you are, you are in a storm and you're looking for some sort of answers and solace and maybe they just invited you to this great church. Others of you, maybe you grew up in the church and, and, and there's just this sense in which you don't know when it comes to Jesus. If this story is true, it totally changes both the game and our lives. 
Flannery O'Connor was a 20th century American writer. She, she was also a novelist, and she wrote a series of short stories. In one of the short stories, there's a character by the name of the Misfit. This character, the Misfit, said that when it comes to Jesus, we really only have one of two choices. One choice is that he is not who he claimed to be. Maybe he was a mythological person. Um, he, he wasn't who he said he was. He wasn't God. And, and the misfit in this story that Flannery O'Connor writes says, if that's the case, then that totally changes everything. Because if Jesus isn't who he's, he's said to be, then God isn't who he is. And if that's the case, then why are you even trying to be good? Why, 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 why are you resisting evil? We might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. But. Misfit says, if Jesus is who he says he is, it totally changes the game in the other direction. We must radically drop everything and submit our lives to him. If this sounds faintly familiar to you, it should. C.S. Lewis, and probably what is uh, his most oft-quoted passage in mere Christianity, says these words. Look at them with me. C.S. Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, speaking of Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So either he's, he's Lord, and if that's the case, radical implications for how we live, or he's a lunatic. Jim Jones, right down the street, right? Now, I'm sorry. You, you can't claim to be deity and wear bifocals. <laughs> that just didn't work for me. <laughs> so you have major problems there, okay? But Jesus does not let you treat him like George Washington or Frederick Douglass or Thomas Jefferson, a mere historical figure, some good examples. No, 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 no. Lewis says that's, that's not what he gives us. See, that's why I miss the bay. I'm, I'm down south now in North Carolina where everybody's just so nice. <laughs> you just go to church and there's this huge cultural Christianity thing drives me nuts. The thing I love about the bay is it's like a street fight for your faith. You're, you're, you're either all in or all out. All right, so here's what I want to do in the last 24 minutes and 21, 20 seconds that we have. Let's look at the Jesus on the surface. And then we'll end by looking at the Jesus beneath the surface. If you grew up in church, 
No doubt you've heard passages like this pretty much taught this way. Jesus tells his disciples to get in a boat. They get in a boat. A storm arises. They freak out. They call out to Jesus. And Jesus calms the storms. And the punchline is Jesus wants to calm the storms in your life. I'm not saying that's not true. In fact, I think that's a wonderful application of this text. A wonderful secondary application. So let's begin with the secondary application of this text. We understand a few things about storms. Our text takes place in the Sea of Galilee, and if you understand anything about the Sea of Galilee, if you've ever been over there, you understand that the Sea of Galilee actually sits about 700 feet below sea level, about 9,200 feet above sea level, and 30 miles to the north sits the great Mount Hermon. This is the mount that, that, that the psalmist calls on in Psalm 133 when he says, how blessed it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious dew of Mount Hermon. So in other words, the Sea of Galilee sits in a bowl. This creates some meteorological problems. Because we understand what now happens is the cool air in which uh, Mount Hermon is situated uh, collides with the warm air of the Sea of Galilee. And now what happens is just this incredible reputation for being a place where out of nowhere it goes from calm to chaos. Sea of Galilee is known for its unpredictability. And in that sense, the Sea of Galilee is a metaphor for the human experience. Storms are unpredictable. They're like pop quizzes. I I, I can manage tests, right? Tests are on the syllabus. We understand where they're coming. They're midterms. There's finals. I just talked to my middle son who's at America's greatest school, Biola University. I have to say that as a trustee. Yes, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And he's telling me about the midterms. And those things, you can plan for them, but pop quizzes, unpredictable. And in that sense, we all get that, don't we? I remember February of 2020, I was at a resort in San Diego (laughs) preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to about 250 NFL athletes and their significant others. I said, it doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> February 2020, this must be what heaven looks like. <laughs> We're baptizing these big NFL players and seeing them come to know the Lord and, 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 and at a resort. <laughs> and then a couple weeks later, I'm like, this stinks. <laughs> COVID has totally changed the game. We're wearing masks. It's changed our work life. It's disrupted the norm. One of the most entertaining things I do now is go on social media and watch videos of people getting kicked off of airplanes because they don't want to wear masks. (laughs) 2020 was incredibly painful for my wife and I. Whatever issues you had prior to COVID, COVID just magnified them. Unpredictable. 
Some of you have lost loved ones. The relational trauma and stress, the financial stress that you're enduring. I'm surprised there's so many people in this room like, you need to pat yourself on the back for not moving to Nashville. <laughs> Someone's like, well, that's coming this week, but <laughs> God bless you, you slackered, <laughs> says the one who moved to Raleigh. <laughs> but not only are storms unpredictable, but storms here at now are also amoral. What I mean by that is just because you're going through a storm doesn't mean you did anything wrong. Please notice the text. Jesus says, let's get in the boat. Which means they're, a, they're doing exactly what they've been told to do. And they're with Jesus. And there's a storm. Don't let these name it, claim it, prosperity heretics tell you that if you've got disease or sickness or something is wrong, then something is wrong with your faith. That is a teaching out of the pit of hell. So, so when we go through stuff, some of us immediately take a spiritual audit and you just assume, I did something wrong, God's mad at me because I'm going through this difficulty. No, look at our text. They're in the boat with Jesus. So God wants someone to hear right now. I'm not mad at you. Like, like the story of Job when Satan goes, you know, Satan goes to have a meeting with God. I wish I was a fly on the wall for that one. And God's like, hey, where you been? Satan's like, I've just been hanging out, going to and fro, been looking for someone to mess with, and I love it. God goes, hey, let me recommend somebody to you. Have you considered my servant Job? And listen to how he describes him. He's perfect and upright. Which means Job didn't do anything to deserve the trauma he went through. God is after something far more than your comfort. He's after his glory. And glory doesn't come in sunshine only. It is most clearly seen in storms. Storms are unpredictable. Storms are amoral. Thirdly, storms are revealing. If you really want to know who you are, if you really want to know who you worship, if you really want to know the scaffolding of your life, that can never be determined in times of prosperity. Prosperity is a horrible teacher. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I'm on a flight and there's turbulence, the first thing I do is I look at the flight attendants. If the flight attendants are still serving Biscoff cookies, <laughs> I'm good. But Lord, have mercy, don't let them strap in and get a freaked out, I've never seen this look on their face. 
I'm panicking. Ray Vanderlyn says that the rabbis taught that a great disciple does exactly what the rabbis are doing. So if Jesus is asleep, why aren't they asleep? But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him, teacher, that's the problem. Why are they freaking out? Because he's teacher, not Lord. Do you not care that we are perishing? Ever said that? Here's in essence what they're saying. They're saying, I'm dying and you don't care. We've read Eli, uh, Ellie Wiesel's book, Night. We've read it. As a child, he's there at the Nazi death camp, and he's seeing all of his Jewish brothers and sisters in the incredible suffering, and he writes in this book about that night that murdered my God. He's dealing with what the academics call theodicy. The idea of theodicy, it's, it's a major impediment as to why so many people cannot uh, uh, follow Christ as Lord is because they cannot reconcile a, a good, benevolent God in my current situation or circumstance. I mean, I mean, just down the road, I'm thinking now of Steve Jobs, Walter Isaacson, and his biography tells of the time. Steve Jobs used to go to church, but one Sunday, he's 12 years old, he comes into the pastor's office and he says, can God fix anything? The pastor's like, like, absolutely, and Steve Jobs kind of puts down a photo of a starving kid in Africa, then why doesn't he fix that? And Jobs left the church never to return because he could not resolve the issue of theodicy. I'll never forget, I grew up in Atlanta, and one of my really good friends growing up, man, is strong Christian, or so I thought, man, he, I mean, we're, we're, we're in our teenage years, man, late teens, and I mean, we're teaching Bible studies together. We're seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Man, this guy is just a strong tower. Fast forward a couple years ago, a couple years later, I'm in Southern California now, wrapping up sem, uh, seminary. He comes out to visit me, and this guy's a, an incredible musician, and, and uh, he decides after the visit, you know, do you mind if I just move in? I want to give this kind of music thing a shot, and so he moves in with me, and and this guy's got a, a, enough skill that he's getting a lot of uh, meetings and people are calling him in for auditions and there's a lot of interest and I'm just kind of watching oh, as the years go by. It's getting closer and closer, but it never quite, quite happens. He ends up marrying a girl uh, from our church and, uh, man, some years later, heartbreak comes and divorce happens and, and, and infidelity happens. And I'll never forget, a couple years after that, I'm, I'm in Atlanta and I got to preach down there and he invites me out to dinner. We're sitting at a P.F. Chang's on the north side of Atlanta, and uh, he just kind of lets up. Man, I'm no longer a follower of Jesus Christ in oversimplification, but at the end of the day, the reason why he says, I just can't get with God anymore is that it's just too much heartbreak, man. I, I have these musical aspirations. He gave me this gift, and I'm not using it the way I want to use it, and man, man the, the love life just kind of cratered in on me, and so I've got to piece God out, and at that moment, what it revealed, those storms revealed, God wasn't really who you worshiped. You worshiped music. You worshiped love, and God God was your administrative assistant to help facilitate your dreams and your idolatry. So 
So storms are like MRIs and CAT scans. If you really want to know your heart. So just last year, man, it's just, again, tough. November 2019, a guy down the street, a pastor by the name of Gary Godini, I mean, this, this guy, he walks with Jesus. As my grandmother would say, uh, this guy has the ghost, <laughs> the Holy Ghost. So Gary sends me a text. He goes, hey, man, don't want to freak you out, but I had an image of Jesus pleading on your behalf. You're about to go through some things. <sighs> okay. A couple weeks later, David Platt, we're not friends. David Platt, we're, we're green room buddies. David Platt has the ghost ghost. David Platt texts me and goes, hey, man, I just got this image. You're about to go through some things. A couple weeks later, my dad, my dad says, man, God's really burdened Psalm 91 for me. I just want to give that to you. A couple days later, one of my best friends in the world who doesn't know, don't know my dad texts me, God's giving me Psalm 91 for you. A couple days later, another friend of mine who doesn't know the other two, hey, man, God's giving me Psalm 91 for you. At this point, I'm like, I should probably read Psalm 91. <laughs> And it just talks about the enemy attacking. And God being our refuge and fortress. And then the bottom falls out. And you kind of have a window of time where you, in essence, say, okay, do I believe this stuff or not? I said, I'm going to lean in. Who is Jesus to you? If he's just a teacher, you won't make it through the storm. And this is where we come to the image beneath the image. You have to understand that the ancients looked at the sea as the most untamable, undomesticated entity in all of the universe. No one could tame the sea. It was 11th century Danish king who was concerned that those in his court were treating him too much as deity. And so one day he decided to take them out on a field trip to the sea. This Danish king in the 11th century says, do you think I'm God? They says, yes, you are. He then turns away from them into the sea and says, stop. Nothing happens. The punchline is he was not God. Or now take 2 Maccabeus 9. So part of what we would call the Apocrypha, there was a true Syrian king, king named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes announced, I am God, even the sea obeys me. And the Jews together as one declared him to be blasphemous. Because the ancients understood the sea could not be tamed and whoever could tame it was God. Now we meet Jesus. 
In John chapter 10, all along he's been claiming his deity. He says in John 10, I and the Father are one. John 8, 58, two chapters before, he declared to religious leaders before Abraham was, I am. Statement of deity, they picked up stones to kill him. Have you ever wondered why people freaked out when Jesus forgave sins, like in Mark chapter 2, when these four friends carried their friend to Jesus, the paralytic, and he not only healed him, they were fine with that, but they freaked out when he forgave them? Because they knew only God could forgive sins. Now Jesus, in the middle of the storm, stands up and says to the storm, peace be still, which in Greek could be read, be quiet and don't say another word. Why are the disciples freaking out at the end? Because they understand this is not just about him calming my situation. This is a declaration of his deity. He is way more than just curing your body. He is way more than just fixing your marriage. He is way more than just getting you a bigger apartment. He is God. So what this means is we see him exercising authority. What does it mean when we exercise authority? When a person exercises authority, it means that they have the final say over everything within their domain. Later on this afternoon, I'll be on a plane I will watch a football game, and in sports, the ones with ultimate authority are not the big buffed athletes, it's the little chubby referees and umpires. (laughs) With the blow of a whistle or the throwing of the flag, they can change the whole trajectory of the game. If you're a student in the classroom, the ones with ultimate authority is the teacher who with the stroke of her pen can change your academic future. At your company, the ones with authority are the board of directors who can decide the fate of the company in sports. With the San Francisco Giants, the ones with authority this year was the Los Angeles Dodgers who sent you home early. (laughs) And in the home, it's parents... Okay, Brian, what does it have to do with me and the profound loneliness I'm feeling? What does this have to do with me? I'm in San Francisco, and it's just tough. What does this have to do with me and my marriage? What does this have to do with me and the health crisis I'm experiencing or what my kids are going? What does this have to do with me? What this means is that if Jesus is God, he has authority, which means this. Jesus has the final say over anything that comes in my life. Technically, your boss doesn't have the final say. Your friends, your enemies don't have the final say. The doctor's report doesn't have the final say. 
Jesus does. So how do we respond to that? One word. Faith. He says to them, where is your faith? Don't you understand who's in the boat with you? I'm not your best friend. I'm God. I'm not your ATM. I'm God. Don't you understand that? They don't. That's why they call him teacher. Hear me. Your level of faith is contingent on your depth of knowledge of him. That's why it's important for you to be in church and to sit under the word because God is digging a foundation for who he is. I end with a story. And then I'm going to talk to you a little bit about Jonah and we're done. Here, here's the story quick. I got a good friend of mine. He married a great woman, but she ain't no yes woman. They decide to go on a cruise, their first cruise. And not long into the cruise, a storm. Boats rocking, people are getting nauseous, vomiting, it's bad. My friend's wife is a little concerned because she doesn't feel like she's getting enough communication from the captain. And so she says, I'm going to call the captain myself. And that's an argument. He's got stuff to do. She just like, sit down, chill out, I'm calling the captain. She calls the captain. But his assistant picks up and says, I'm sorry, ma'am, the captain is busy navigating the ship through the storm. If you'll relay to me your questions, I'll get them to the captain. He'll issue a response. And she just starts hitting this woman with a litany of questions. Listen, if we are forced to turn around and we can't complete the cruise, will I get a full or partial refund? And just kind of all kinds of questions. Her husband is horrified. The captain's assistant listens carefully. My friend's wife gets finished asking the questions. She says to her, true story, ma'am, I've notated all your questions. I'll get them to the captain. Captain will call you back. Sure enough, about an hour later, she calls back. She says, ma'am, I have given all your questions to the captain, and the captain wishes to issue you two responses. The first response, he says, no disrespect, ma'am, but go to sleep. <laughs> captain wants you to know he went to school for this. This ain't his first storm. He's going to be up all night, and since he knows what he's doing and you don't know what you're doing, there's no sense in both of you all losing sleep. Go to sleep. The second thing the captain wants you to understand, true story, is, ma'am, you can rest easy because actually this ship was built with this storm in mind. When the architects designed the ship and the builders built the ship, they didn't design it just for sunny days. They designed the ship with the reality of the storm in mind. My friend's wife hung up the phone and she went to sleep because she heard from the authority. Because I want you to understand no matter what it is you go through, no temptation has overtaken you. The ship of your faith has been built with the reality of life's storms in mind and Jesus dwells in you, the Holy Spirit, you can make it. Finally, in our last 38 seconds, if you are a Jew and you are hearing this story for the first time, I guarantee you what you're thinking. You're thinking of Jonah. The similarities are too rich. Both Jonah and Jesus are on a boat. Both are in a storm. Both are asleep. Both have to be wakened by sailors. There's one difference. Jonah says, throw me into the storm 
and peace will come. But in Matthew 12, Jesus says, I am the true and better Jonah. On the cross, Jesus was thrown into the ultimate storm, death, and he conquered death. All of us will die in a storm, but we need not fear the storm of death because if he conquered it, so can you and I. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Christ is in our life, we will overcome any storm that may come our way. So I end by asking you, who's Jesus to you? C.S. Lewis, one more time, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. Is he just a teacher to you? Is he a mythological figure or a historical figure that sets a good example, or is he Lord? Father, I thank you. Thank you for the anamorphic Jesus. Yes, you calm the storms in our life, but you are so much more. You are God, and we worship you for being God. And we say no matter what comes, we're leaning in by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.